1: This summer. Um, you've heard from Pastor Dean. You've heard from my friend Darren. Uh, Tim got to preach his first sermon. Uh, and rocked it, and, uh, it. But it's good, I think, just to hear where other people are coming from because they're going to have different life experiences. They're going to have just a different voice in general how they do that. Uh, and I do believe, as we've said many times, that my job as your lead pastor is to be the lead investor, right? Like It's my job to invest in people and really build the church. And so, part of that, for me, is not being in the pulpit every single Sunday. For, for me, that means finding people that, that we can invest in to allow them to have a voice from the stage. And so, one of those people uh, is Joey, and he's coming to speak today. So, why is Joey doing this? Well, if you don't know uh, already, Joey, um, about a year ago, got to preach with me up here. And we, we did it together, right, to kind of ease him in. Because he felt like he wanted to do that. He felt maybe a call and ministry on his life. So we said, all right, well, let's do this together. And then I said, but next time you do it, you're going to be on your own. It's going to be you up there, right? You and Jesus, that's it. And so he said, all right, let's do that. And so a few months ago, uh, I just began feeling like I wanted to develop a preaching lab. I just felt like that would be cool if I'm going to have people and investing people. There should probably be a pathway for that. And so Uh, It's based on my own experiences, it's based on other materials that I've really found helpful during this process. And so Joey and I went through a six-week preaching lab together. Each week was about an hour, and we talked about things like what is preaching, right? It's not just about information, it's about transformation. And then we talked about thinking about who you're talking to in the room, like what kind of stories are people bringing up the stairs and then landing in our room. Uh, We talked about things just like thinking, how how do you even, like, approach the prep of a sermon? And then how do you actually put a sermon together? And then, obviously, how do you deliver a sermon? And then Joey, during that time, each week, he had homework and things he had to think about, and then he had to come back. And then last Saturday, um, so not yesterday, but a week ago, I said, you need to have your sermon ready. You have your notes ready. I gave him a couple notes from a couple of my sermons just to kind of help him with that. And I said, and then we're going to go over your notes, and we're going to critique your notes, and I'll help you with transitions or whatever, and make sure it's biblically sound, you know, that we're not, like, having heresy from the stage because we don't want that. Uh, You know, and all that kind of stuff, which I wasn't worried about, but just the kind of mechanics of it and any other questions that he had. So we did that. We spent Saturday going over that, going over some of the end lessons in the labs that we didn't uh, get to do together. And then I said, okay, so now this past week, what you need to do is you need to now then start preaching the sermon, and you got to record yourself, watch yourself, which is a painful thing to have to do, and then critique yourself. I said, and then Thursday at 1 p.m. this last Thursday, he came in and he preached it to about 10 of us. And I had uh, questions already ready so that we could critique him and offer him some advice and pointers and questions that we had. And so, we, we, Joey's been run through the ringer uh, before he was able to come up on stage, because as a church, we're putting our trust in Joey, and I believe it's it's wisely placed, Joey. Like, I, I love, I've already heard his sermon now three times, and it's been great every time, so, uh, you know, spoiler alert. But I do believe, again, that the, the purpose of the church is to invest in people, to help people find a calling in life and just invest in however we can in that, because it's not about Pastor Kyle, is it? we're not here to make me famous, we're going to make Jesus famous, right? That's what we do as as Christians, that's what we do as a church. And so investing in our young people, especially, as I mentioned, like the next generation coming up and showing how they get to be a part of the church is a unique way, because this is a very upfront way, obviously, but there's lots of ways where we're trying to just say, hey, what are our young people doing? Like, how can we invest in them in their journey, right? Whether they're married, whether they're single, whether they're like just getting a job, it's like, let's do this journey together, amen? So lend prayer for Joe, and then I'll have him come up. So, Lord, we thank you for today. I thank you for Joey and what you just put on his heart today. And I just pray, Holy Spirit, you'll be here, you'll meet us, and as always, Lord, that you'll do the work that only you can do. And I pray that in your name, Jesus. And his church said, Amen. Joey back, ladies and gentlemen.
2: Good morning, guys. Good morning to the people online, too. Glad you guys joined us. Hopefully see you next week. I'll hold you accountable for that. All right. <laughs> so... I've been working on this for a little while now uh, with Kyle, as you said. I'm super excited and super happy and thankful that I even have the opportunity to be able to share this with you guys. Um, so yeah, let's get right into it, um, and what I'm going to be talking about today is something that's not always super easy to do, and that's going to be trusting God in times of crisis. So not only can trusting God be kind of difficult at times, but trusting him in times of crisis that picks it up a few notches, that makes it a little more spicy, you know what I'm saying? So, as I was writing the sermon, I saw the statistic, and it actually kind of blew my mind when I read it. So in America, a survey was taken, and it says 65% of adults claim to be Christian. Now, in the 65% of adults, 54% believe that they're going to make it to heaven. And now, even less than that, only 33% believe they're going to make it to heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross. I saw another survey that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with this, and this is from USA Today. we said that every one out of three people don't even trust their own fellow American citizens. They don't even even trust the person standing in front of them in line at the grocery store. They don't even trust their own neighbor. It seems that in America, we're not sure who or what to trust. We don't know what to place our trust in. And trust is a funny thing. Trust at times can kind of feel like you're stepping into the dark. You don't really know what you're getting yourself into, but you're hoping and you're thinking that it's going to turn out okay. Maybe you're saying, hey God, I'm placing my trust in you. Help me get through this. I hope it turns out okay. A few years ago, I had to go through a season of my life where I had to place my trust in God. Uh, So a few years ago, I was going into my sophomore year of high school, um, and my family decided that we were going to do home Now, as a kid who did public schooling his whole life with all sorts of friends, I was not very fond or very excited of the idea of now going to be home every day and not seeing my friends and just working at home. Um, But, The funny thing is that God brought me through this season of my life for a reason. I placed my trust in him. I started cracking open my Bible. I started praying like I should have been, and my faith took off like a rocket ship, and it changed my life, literally changed my life. This was one of the most instrumental seasons of my life, huge part of my testimony. There's tons of stories in the Bible about trust, but one of the famous ones, one of the ones that we all know of is the story of Noah's Ark. We all grew up learning about it. Sunday school We see the picture books the giraffe sticking its head out the window, Noah's smiling, the rainbow goes over the top, the waves are calm, the sun is shining. It's like a great time. And it's so funny because that's not at all how the Bible depicts that story. In fact, it is so much more intense than that, and we're going to dive into that. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, um, and it starts at verse 9. So verse 9 says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Whenever in Genesis it said that this is the account of, that's called the Toledah in Hebrew, The Toledot basically is like a new story, a new event in the book of Genesis. There's 10 of these in Genesis. So still in that same verse, in verse 9, it says that Noah was a righteous man. It says that he was blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. I want you guys to notice how this starts out. The very first thing, it says that Noah was righteous and blameless, and he walked faithfully with God. And that's important because there's only one other person in the Bible that it says they walked with God. And that's his great grandfather Enoch. And I also want to point out I to say that when it says he was righteous and blameless, it doesn't mean that he was perfect. Because Noah was just like you and I. But what it means is that he was faithful, he was obedient, and I guess you could say he was up to date on his forgiveness with God. So with this all in mind, let's go on to the next verse, verse eleven. It says now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and it was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. It says corrupt three times in the last two sentences. When it says corrupt, it means evil, messed up, perverted, total 180 on what God had planned for mankind. In fact, it had become so corrupt and so evil that earlier in verse 6, it says that the Lord had regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and that his heart was deeply troubled. It had become so messed up that God's heart was deeply troubled troubled. Now I also want to point out the list that God regretted making human beings. It doesn't necessarily mean it in the way that we think it means. The Hebrew word for this is yinahem, which means he's basically feeling extreme grief or extreme pain. It's not that he wished, he didn't actually create us. because just a few chapters ago, it says that we were made in his own image and that when he created us we were very good. But the world had become so bad for God now to say in verse 13, I'm going to put an end to all people the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Do you ever wish that you wish something had a better outcome? Do you ever wish that something you meant for good turned out bad, and you kind of wish that it didn't? I said wish like five times God so. um, kind of felt that. God's been in your shoes before. Just a few chapters ago in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve totally betray. God and they eat the fruit that God just told them not to do so God has felt that God has been in your shoes before something else that I want to point out is that God's justice and judgment here is super awkward to wrestle with and it's kind of like a hard pill to swallow just because well one all the death is going to happen and two his judgment for this is like super extreme but I think that's totally okay to wrestle with as we go throughout the story so now Moses who wrote the book of Genesis, writes down the details of the actual artist's measurements that God gave to Noah. In verses 14 through 16, God tells Noah, just lays it all out, all the instructions. How big is it? This thing is absolutely massive. It's massive. Length-wise, it's about a football field and a half long. I mean, width-wise, probably like a professional basketball court wide. And then I guess height-wise, probably like a couple-story apartment complex building tall. It's pretty tall. There's actually a picture uh, from the sergeants when they took their trip, and were standing in front of the ark. The thing is massive. Look at how big that thing is. But that was what was needed to survive the flood. So continuing on, God now speaking to Noah, still is. In verse 17, he says, I'm going to bring waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in its nostrils will perish. It's the most catastrophic event in human history is about to take place and God's telling Noah about it. But he doesn't just leave Noah there. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, I'm going to flood the world. Here's some instructions. Build an ark. He makes a promise to Noah. In verse 18 it says, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. God makes a promise here. And I don't know about you, but my God does not break promises. In fact, this is the first of five times in the Bible is there a covenant or a promise made. And they all kind of connect down in succeeding order. It's actually pretty cool. So the first one being this one, the Noahic Covenant, with Noah, that God will not flood the earth again. We have the Abrahamic Covenant. Abraham, he's promised a great land and many descendants. And then we have the Mosaic Covenant, that God will be the God of Israel and he gives them the law they have to be faithful and obedient to. Then the Davidic Covenant, the Messiah, Jesus, will one day be the king through the line of David. And then finally, the fifth and final one, the new covenant, the promise that God will forgive our sin through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. It's super interesting how Jesus actually compares to the ark here. He compares a lot to the ark here. Just like the ark is going to get Noah through the flood, Jesus will get us through life and our troubles, and eventually get us to heaven if you put your trust and heart in him. God gives Noah like the ultimate survivor's guide to surviving the flood here. Like, 101 facts on how to survive the flood. God gives it all to Noah. And it's pretty cool. In verses 19 through 21, God tells Noah to bring all the animals and types of food with him for him and his family and the animals to eat. Because they're going to be up on the ark for a hot minute. They're going to be up there for a wall. But now what I'd be wondering is, did Noah just trust God and do what he said? Or he should say, okay, yeah, whatever, God. Just wait for the flood to come his way. Well, in verse 22, it says that Noah did everything just As God commanded him. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Even though it might have been difficult. I mean, it must have been super difficult. Imagine you're pulling a lion by the rope and it's fighting and it breaks three. It just ate the third sheep of the day. Now you have to go and find another male sheep. I mean, imagine the struggle there. That's crazy. Or even, they said earlier that they lived in a very corrupt world where humans just did evil all the time. Imagine a thief comes and steals your tools. so now you're down five hammers. Your wood's missing. Your cattle's missing. Um, Hey, that must have been super difficult. In 2 Peter 2, verse 5, it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Imagine you're Noah. You step in the Noah's shoes for a minute. And you're going around. You're telling everyone, hey, God's going to flood the earth. And they're like, yeah, right. Maybe they spit at you and they walk away. Imagine how demoralizing that must have been for Noah to go through. But he kept doing it anyway. And he kept his trust in God. In chapter 7, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to Noah... Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Earlier I pointed out how verse 9 was an important verse, because God sees it here now. He sees that Noah was righteous and faithful and obedient to him. So he says, hey, I've seen you. you got to get on the ark. you got to survive this thing. And what is... Now verse 4, Seven days from now I will send the rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe the, from the face of the earth every living creature that I made. Now in verse 5, And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Again, after more instruction, Noah is still faithful and obedient to what God says. I also think it's interesting to point out the Bible never, like, gets into the detail of how Noah was feeling through this whole thing. It doesn't say that he scared. It doesn't say that he was worried. It doesn't say that he didn't want to do it. All it says is that Noah was faithful and obedient to what God says, and I think that's important because I think that's all we need to do. And Noah had a lot of trust in God, so much trust. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says that by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By faith, Noah, he put his trust in God, when warned about things not yet seen, he didn't know the, really know if the flood was coming yet, it hadn't come yet, he still did it anyway, in holy fear, and he saved his family from the flood. Earlier I mentioned how God reveals something really, really cool about his character, and we're about to dive right into that. So I have this illustration for you guys, bear with me, it's a little bit extreme. I have this box of Legos here, it's very nice. So what if I poured it out right here and I said, okay, figure it out. And you're like, okay, sure. The catch is that I took the instructions out of the box, I ripped them up and I burned them. So there's no instructions. You've got to figure it out on your own. On top of that, you have a limited amount of time to figure it out. And then even more, if you don't figure it out, I'm stealing all your money from you because I have that kind of power. What's really cool is that God does not do that to Noah. God doesn't just dump a bunch of stuff at Noah's feet and leave him to figure it out. He helps Noah get through it. So if we go back a couple verses, back in chapter 6 and verse 13, God makes an announcement. He says, I'm going to bring an end to all people then he follows up with that announcement right with an instruction in verse 14. He says to make yourself an ark. And then again, he gives another announcement in verse 17. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life. And what does he do after that announcement? He gives more instruction. Verses 18 through 21 says that you need to enter the ark, you need to bring animals, and you need to bring food. What does Noah do? Noah executes. Verse 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. God gave the announcement, gave Noah the instructions, but it was up to Noah to execute those instructions. He didn't have to. Noah had free will, just like the rest of us here, but he did. He put his trust in God, and he did what God said. So my question for you is, what are you going to do when the flood comes your way? Are you going to drown in the flood of fear, of worry, of anxiety, of addiction, of jealousy, When you lose your job, and you can't pay your bills when you lose a loved one, when it feels like you've nothing left to give in a, hope we're all, a world where all hope has been lost. Or, or, will you step into the ark? Will you step into the plan that God has for you? Will you be faithful and obedient to what God says? Will you execute God's instructions? The story continues. In verses 7-9, through 9, it says that Noah and his family and all the animals, they enter the ark. And then verse 10, After the seven days the floodwaters came on the earth, disaster begins. Whether Noah liked it or not, whether we like it or not, disaster is going to come. There's nothing we can really do about it. Earlier I mentioned how we grew up reading the picture books of Noah's Ark and how much more intense the Bible gets into it. And we're about to dive right into it. Verse 11 says, On that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. Imagine you're in your kitchen cooking dinner, or you're outside tending to your farm. Next thing you know, 10 feet in front of you, a massive spout of water goes sky high. So it's pouring rain, the wind's blowing so hard you can't see anything, but all you can see is just the flood water washing away everything you have, everything you worked for, and everyone you know. Imagine how intense that must have been and the panic in these people's lives as they're experiencing this event. And verses 17 through 20 says that the water rose so high for so long that the top of the highest mountains of more than a depth of 15 cubits. I don't know about you, but I don't measure things in cubits. So if you want to know how long, how high that really is, that's about 20 feet, a little more than 20 feet. Imagine you're on the ark, you look down, you can't even see Mount Everest. That's how much of a distance there is and how high the floodwaters actually rose. Now the imagery gets pretty intense here, so in verse 22 it says, Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him on the ark. Only those on the ark survived. Only those who put their trust in God were able to make it through the most catastrophic event in human history. And there's still a lot of awkward tension here. This is intense. God's judgment is intense. What's actually happening is intense. And that's okay to wrestle with. Like I said earlier, the ark relates so much to Jesus. So much to Jesus. The ark getting them through the flood. Jesus getting us through our own troubles and our own battles. In verse 24, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. I'd be real with you guys, life is hard. Life is super hard. I mean, you look at the news, and now the government's telling us aliens might be real. Are you kidding me? What is going on? <laughs> Tragedy is going to strike us if bad things are going to happen, and there's not much we can do about it. And Jesus in the Bible is actually super honest about this. A couple weeks ago at work camp for our mission trip, the memory verse for that week was John 16 33. And in that verse, Jesus says, In this world, we have trouble. It's a guarantee. We're going to have trouble. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just say that to his disciples. He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has already done the hard part. He's already defeated death. So there's only one question. Will you drown in the flood rooted in the world or will you float above rooted in Christ? Will you drown in the flood rooted in the world or where you float above where in Christ. Where is your heart at? In Matthew chapter six, verse 21, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I ask, is Jesus your treasure? Have you given your heart to Jesus? Have you placed your trust in Jesus? How do you know you can place your trust in Jesus? How do we know that this Jesus dude is actually legit? How do we know that he's reliable? I think that there's a multitude of reasons why he is. We could look at historical evidence, How is it possible that 500 witnesses all claim to see a risen Messiah? Some people would say they're hallucinating. I would say to that, that doesn't make sense. 500 people hallucinating the same thing, that doesn't add up. How is it possible that all 12 disciples would give their life for Jesus, some of whom, like Peter, who had just previously denied Jesus? Peter denied Jesus three times, but he would end up giving his life in the name of Jesus, along with the rest of the 12 disciples. How is it possible that a book made up of 56 different books, written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years, would one, go against man's natural desires, two, not contradict, and three, tell one grand story about one God who loved us so much that he would die for us? And this is not to mention, The 53,779 cross-references that take place in the Bible, when I say cross-reference, I mean one point of the Bible that points back to another one, and it can be over a span of 100 years or more. That just doesn't make sense. And uh, all the archeological evidence is crazy, crazy. There is so much that you can find. Something that I believe is hard to refute is testimonial evidence. So many times in life has something seemed impossible, but God's made it happen, Anyway, we've seen sicknesses healed, we've seen addictions end, we've seen families reunite, we've seen lives change, and we're still seeing them change today, even in this very own church. This church here, lives are changing. Now, have a cool story for the fourth fans in here. You'll probably like this one a lot. It's about this dude named Tim Tebow. I don't know if you've heard of him. Legendary college football quarterback for the Florida Gators. Um, he loves Jesus, and something really awesome happened about a decade and a half ago. We have a video here, and we're going
0: to play it championship game, I was contemplating, really agonizing over what verse I was going to go with. But God God kept bringing to my heart and my head, John 3.16, because as a Christian, that's the essence of our Christianity, it's the essence of our hope. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what we believe in as Christians. So I decided that's the verse I'm going to go with. Honestly, really after that moment, I didn't really think about it. Next night I just went out there and we were blessed to win the national championship and two days after that game I was sitting in Ballyhoo restaurant eating group with my mom, my dad, one of my aunts and Coach Meyer, and Coach Meyer gets a call from our PR guy at Florida and he's like, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, bye. I looked at him, I was like, What's that all about? He told me who it was, our PR guy, and he said, And he just told me that during that game, ninety-four million people Googled John three sixteen. What was really cool about that game is it was on January 8th of 2009. Well, exactly three years later, January 8th, 2012, exactly three years later to the day we just happened to be playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in the first round of the playoffs. I didn't think of John 316 one time, so I can't take credit for it. I had nothing to do with it. I just went out there and tried to do anything I could to try to win a playoff game. And we were blessed to win this crazy game in overtime. and. After the game, when we were done celebrating, I changed really quick and I was going down the hall to do my press conference and I was really looking forward to it because I love talking to the media. (laughs) And so I was getting ready to turn left and go into these curtains to to talk to the media and Patrick, our PR guy, steps in front of me. He says, Timmy, did you realize what happened? And I was like, yeah, we just beat the Steelers. We're going to play the Patriots. Like, let me do this. He goes, Timmy, did you realize what happened? Uh, I could tell he was being serious, so I was like, Patrick, what's up, man? He looks at me and says, Timmy, this is exactly three years from the time you put John 3.16 into your eyes. I was like, oh, really? That's awesome. That's really cool. He says, no, you don't realize. During the game, you threw for 316 yards. Your yards per rush were 3.16. Your yards per completion were 31.6. The time of possession was 31.06, and the ratings for the night were 31.6. And during the game, 90 million people Googled John 3.16, and it's the number one thing on all social media right now.
2: Moments like that are unexplainable. That doesn't make sense. But God, but God. So if we look back at the story, Noah survived the flood because he his trust in God. He did what God told him, and because he did that, him and his family were able to survive the most catastrophic event in human history. In fact, this event was so catastrophic that all over the world there's some sort of flood narrative in many different cultures' history. Look at Native American tribes, they have some sort of story about floods. You look at, this one is very famous, this is the Mesopotamian Epic of Gilgamesh. So Mesopotamia was like in the Middle East. The Epic of Gilgamesh is basically the rip-off version of Noah's Ark. I'm pretty sure the boat's a little smaller. I'm pretty sure there's not eight people on the boat. Uh, they do bring animals, but you guys can look into it if you want. Um, <laughs> earlier, I mentioned me going into homeschooling. If I don't place my trust in him, I don't, I'm going to make a bold statement. I don't think I'm standing up here on the stage today. If I didn't go through something that I didn't want to go through, I don't think my life changes the way that it did. Even writing this own sermon, I had my own little crisis. I remember writing it, I was like, okay, sure. So I go downstairs, I print it out, I preach it, and I was like, Oh, wow, this stinks. So then I go back upstairs, and I sat down on my computer screen, and I was just kept staring at my screen for like an hour, just beating myself up over something I really didn't have to do. Telling myself I was too young, the material wasn't good enough, whatever it was. I was struggling to trust God on a sermon about trusting God, which is kind of ironic. But I saw this one quote and it stuck out to me and I thought it was really good. It was from the Bible Knowledge Commentary and it says, Catastrophe does not interrupt God's program. Catastrophe does not interrupt God's program. Just because something bad happens doesn't mean something good can come out of it from God. Just because Jesus died on a cross didn't stop him from completing the mission that he was sent here to do. Just because a flood was coming that didn't stop God's plan for humanity or the promise he made to Noah. And God made us all a promise before we were even born, that he would bring us life, life in abundance and eternal life. Not even death can stop God from bringing you life. Not even death can stop God from bringing you life. Earlier we mentioned how Noah was blameless and that he walked with God. Just because he was a good person, just because he was super faithful and obedient to God, that didn't mean that he didn't have to go through the flood. That didn't mean he didn't have to go through a crisis, because we're all going to go through a crisis at one point. But the difference was that Noah got to go through this crisis with God. So Romans chapter 8, verse 37, it says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There is not one aspect of this life that God cannot get us through. Whether that's homeschooling, whether that's prepping a sermon, or whether that's going through a worldwide catastrophic flood, Nothing can stop God. Earlier I brought up the verse, Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 5, but I want to continue that. I want to go all the way up to verse 9. And it says, He did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who is distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. Verse 9, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Earlier, we read the call to worship, which was James 1.22, and it said, Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. God gave us the commandments. He gave us the words, He gave us everything that we need, but it's up to us to do what it says. Going back to Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, Jesus gives a message on not worrying. But He ends that message by saying this in verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you as well. Verse 34, therefore do not worry, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. God will provide, but it's up to us to seek first. We need to execute just like Noah executed God's instructions. So the bottom line for today is, you can either drown in the flood, or you can float above. You can either drown in the flood, or you can float above. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, I come for now. Just Thank you for always guiding us and leading us in the right direction, God, and I pray that you continue to help us place our trust in you, God. I pray that you get us through whatever we're going through right now because, like you said, man, it's a guarantee. We're going to go through troubles. But you said, take heart because you've overcome the world, God, and that is simply amazing. So as we go about our lives, God, I pray that you keep us all safe. I pray that you give us hope and encouragement, God. And I pray that you do the thing that only you can do. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, can we thank Joey? Uh, He did a great job, he's he's really chasing God, and he's done a ton of work to prepare this message for us, and so we're blessed to hear it. Uh, But with that, thank you guys for coming out, Uh, have a great week.
0: Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So, if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at Quabogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.